you have a blind spot. So do I. I'm not talking about my bad eye here either. I'm talking about every one of us, apparently by design, there is a spot in our eyes where the retina comes into the eye and there are no cones, if you know anything about eyes, and no light comes through there. There's a spot in your vision where you can see nothing. It, it's just the way it is. It's, it's part of the hardware, friends. And, and mostly it doesn't affect us. I mean, our brain is astounding just the way that is designed to fill in details that we don't see. I have a poorly functioning eye, and yet I can see you all very clearly. It is astounding how the brain will ignore things. Like a, a monitor. You ever have a monitor go bad, you know, a computer monitor? And you start seeing these pixels, these little tiny squares that just aren't turning on. That's kind of like a blind spot in your vision. You have the same thing going on with your car. You know, you may have no backing up. There's just a spot you can't see or changing lanes. Better have that side mirror set properly or you may run into someone. Blind spots. Sometimes we have them about ourselves. You know, things that we're doing or, or words that we use and we don't even think about it. You know, recently, uh, uh, we've, uh, within my family, we've kind of joked around at how many times people say, oh, <laughs> apparently it's a Midwestern thing, you know, moving around in a crowd trying to, oh, you know, it, it's a weird thing, but, and mostly nobody pays any attention to it, you know, blind spots. But today I want to talk about a particular blind spot, and it has to do with Christmas, it's a psychological blind spot, if we could put it that way. You see, uh, this is a, 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 a situation in our lives where, where we become blinded to something so very important. You see, we, we know that uh, you, we, you keep Christ in Christmas, right? Christ, Christmas is all about Christ, right? You know, I mean, we say that. But let's face it, what do we practice at Christmas time? We always act upon that which we believe, right? It's true. You know, if I believed I could fly, I might jump. I might climb up to the highest place and give a leap. If I believed that, I would. Because we believe that Christmas isn't really about Christ. What we do is we decorate, you know, and how many of you got stuff out in your front yard right now? Come on, Christmas decorations. Yeah, it's true. How many of you put up a tree in your living room or somewhere in your house? It's what we believe. Christmas is not really so much about Christ as it is really about a holiday, right? Now, the fact is this, and, and we all agree here, okay? This isn't a rebuke, you know? It's just one of these blind spots that we have, you know? That, that Christmas is the one time in our year where everything is really an open conversation to talk about Christ, you know? And specifically, the incarnation of the Son of God, Incarnation. I'll bet you that's not a word you use very often. <laughs> the incarnation of the Son of God. 
And that's what we're going to talk about here because that is Christmas. I mean, look at the image here, you know? Well, that's what we think when we think Christmas. That is an image that represents the incarnation. The word incarnation means in flesh, you know? And, uh, you know, I think a Spanish word for meat is carne. Anybody know Spanish that wants to correct me? Am I right? I'm right. <laughs> flesh, the Son of God, Spirit, took on flesh, added humanity to himself. How many of you got dogs at home? How many of you want to be a dog? If you could snap your finger and suddenly become a friend of your pet, down on all fours, walking around and thinking about living the life of a dog, very similar to what Christ did. The holy God added humanity to himself in order that he might live among men. We're going to talk about the incarnation here today. So again, the incarnation means in flesh. It denotes the act whereby the eternal Son of God took to himself an additional nature. I knew we want to roll up our legs. It's a little deeper over here. Pant legs. We can't roll up our legs. Come on. Pay attention. All right. A little distracted this morning. And so we want to roll up and think about this. That the Son of God, a divine nature, added human nature to himself. God, who is fully God, added humanity. He is God and he is man. That is what we're talking about here today. The God-man. Now, to understand the incarnation, we must understand three very important truths here. Okay? Now, here, you know what? It might be better to be aware of these truths because really wrapping your head around it might be a little difficult. But three very important truths. And the first one is this. Jesus is God. He has a divine nature. You know, we've talked about this at past Christmases and we've talked about the hypostatic union, which is a theological term of what we're talking about here. You know, that uh, the, uh, <laughs> the old church fathers in their portraits, a lot of them would, you know, this way and this way and this way, but they would hold up their hand with two fingers because it was a theological statement that Jesus, one person, has two natures. He is not the blender version, a third nature of a combination betwixt the two, no, he is God and he is man. Divine nature, human nature. And first and foremost, we must understand that Jesus is God. He has a divine nature. Now let's talk about the importance of this, his divinity. At the heart of orthodoxy, that word orthodoxy sounds like something people only talk about at uh, in, in seminary, you know, what was orthodoxy? Ortho means straight, okay? Straight, not crooked, not going off into the corners and the shadow. Think about an orthodontist, okay? Dentist, the dente means teeth. 
Ortho means straight. They straighten up your teeth. Orthodoxy, on the other hand, is straight truth, glory, or praise. It is the truth defined carefully. And so orthodox belief is the recognition that Christ died a substitutionary death to provide salvation for lost humanity. If Jesus were only a man, he could not have died to save the world. If he were only a man, even sinless man, he could die for one. But the fact that he is the God-man, he could die in our place, our substitute, and take on the penalty for sin for all of us. All of us. And so his deity and his death had infinite value whereby he could die for all of us. So that's the importance. The Bible says, however, that Jesus is God. And, and Tamara just read such an important passage here this morning, and it may have sounded familiar. And, and as t- things tend to do, they just kind of float by us. We don't really stop to think. So I want you to turn with me to John chapter 1. In verse 1, the Gospel of John, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. You may know it. I highly commend that you memorize it. So very important. You remember last week we talked about Matthew's Gospel addressing Jesus as the King, and it was written and addressed to the Jews who would be especially sensitive to their Messiah, the King. Matthew, Mark, Mark wrote to the Romans about Jesus being the perfect servant. Luke, the perfect man to the Greeks. But John, John, throughout this scripture, if you squeezed it all together, you know what drip out? That Jesus is the Son of God. Over and over and over again. And notice this. In John 1 verse 1, in the beginning, yeah, that beginning, way, way back. In the beginning was the word. That word is the logos. That's the Greek word logos. It may be familiar to you. In the beginning was the word. You notice word is capitalized, at least it is in my translation, because it's talking about God. And notice, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Who is the word? The word is God, and God was with God. The Son of God, the Son and the Father, with one another from the very beginning. He was in the beginning with God, and notice all things were made through him. All things were made through the word. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Who created the world? God. Who created the world? Tell me. It was the Word. And who is the Word is the question. So all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made, and in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then John gives us this parenthesis about John the Baptist and his ministry to introduce the word to the world. He was the one that would go and preach and prepare the way 
for Jesus to come. And then we come to verse 14. And in verse 14, we read this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. I like the the way the King James puts this. And we beheld his glory. It just gives a feel of majesty. And we saw him. God pulled back the curtain and said, this is my son. And we beheld him. We beheld him. We saw his glory. The glory is of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. The word is God. The word is Jesus. My friends, John chapter 1 and verse 14 is Christmas. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. So the Bible says that Jesus is God. There it is right there. Boom. John writing it out testifies that the word who was God with God became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus also says he is God in John chapter 8. See, John is a wonderful place to go and see the testimony that Jesus is very God of very God. He is the Son of God in John chapter 8 and verse 56 You know, one thing that if you read through the Gospels, and my friends, I really hope that you are, you will see this constant attack by the Jewish leaders. Now, let's be fair. Let's be fair to the Jewish leaders. They have a great responsibility to evaluate every teacher to make sure they are teaching the truth that the people of Israel might not be led astray. And these people took that job and then cranked it up times a thousand And everyone was an enemy that came in as a teacher, and so they came after him. In John chapter 8 and verse 56, Jesus, in responding to them, you know, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to them, and they must have been laughing under their breath, You are not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And look at Jesus' response here. Jesus said to them, truly, truly. I love that truly, truly. He's like, hey, hey, don't miss this. Here's the truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, that is horrible grammar but it is wonderful doctrine. Before, looking back into the past, before Abraham was, I am the eternal existent one. He just said to them, I am God. And you you say, well, how, how in the world did you get that from there? Well, take a look at their response. So they picked up stones to throw at him. <laughs> Why? Because he just made himself out to be God. Another one of those acts of blasphemy. You see, it wasn't that they didn't know the truth. They knew the truth. They just rejected the truth. This man will not be our God. And so they tried to kill him. 
The same is true in chapter 10. I mean, hey, we're in John. We've been in 1. We've been in 8. Let's go to 10. John chapter 10 in verse 22. We looked at this last week. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem, and so people were coming from all over the place. Big, big, big celebration. And it was wintertime, and Jesus was walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said, How long will you keep us in suspense? Tell us. Are you the Christ? Are you the one that the prophets told us about, that he would be coming? That's what they're talking about. We studied the scriptures. We know the Messiah is coming. Are you him? Spill the beans, friend. Spill the beans. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness of me. I mean, who can do the things I do but God alone? He doesn't say that, but that's what he means by this. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. There's a promise to hold on to. And my Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And here it is. I and the Father one. Boom. And there it is again. Jesus just said, I am God. And here we are again, the Jews. Now you'd figure they'd have sewed pockets in their robes just to carry around rocks. But no, they picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus this time answered them and said, I have shown you many good works. From the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? (laughs) And the Jews answered him, It is not for the good works that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, they believed Jesus was a man. That's pretty good evidence of his humanity, by the way. You being a man, make yourself God. And do you know why? Because he is God, he is the God man. So Jesus himself testified to being God. My friends, Jesus is God. He has a divine nature. Know this at Christmas time. The baby is not just a beautiful child to sing songs about and have fond memories of when we carried our little ones. He's God. That baby step down from the glories of heaven, interrupted eternal fellowship with the Father, the praise of angels day after day of which he is worthy. And he took on flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is God. There is no doubt about that, my friends. But fact number two about Christmas, Jesus added to himself a human nature. 
Jesus, did not pretend to be a man. He did not dress up like a man. He became a human like you and I. And when you think about humanity, especially in light of deity, I don't know about you, but the word frailty comes to mind. The eternal Son of God who spoke and brought all things into existence. The Word of God endured birth. He was born. I mean, we want to look at uh, the evidence of his humanity. Well, one of the things that we all have in common is we were born. The virgin birth was the means whereby the incarnation took place and guaranteed the sinlessness of the Son of God. And for this reason, the virgin birth was essential. Prophecy is found in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. The virgin would give birth. And you and I know so well much about it because we follow Christ. We've celebrated Christmas before, right? The evidence of his human nature is the fact that he endured birth, which is, of course, very well known. Everybody knows about virgin birth. I mean, there's a Roman Catholic church, you know, with a big display out front. I mean, the name is Nativity, right? Focusing on this incarnational moment. But Jesus endured birth, and he had a human body. It wasn't just a disguise, my friend. He did not come and appear as a man. He took on flesh and humanity, a human nature to himself with all its limitations. One of the first things that came to mind is when Jesus was on the cross, you remember, of the seven statements, one of them was, I thirst. I thirst. Think about that. I just uh, took some medicine I take every day, and I had a can of water, and I was chugging it down, not because I was thirsty, but it's easier to swallow pills that way, and it was enjoyable. When's the last time you were thirsty? I remember as a kid. Remember be, uh, as a kid running around in the summertime, and, and you know, you're just outside, and you're turning brown by the minutes, you know, and, and then you're just thirsty, you know, and I don't know about you, uh, me and my, my friends, we just turn on the garden hose, you know, and then because we're guys, we try and hook up and <laughs> until it exploded. And, but you know, just the, the thirst, gotta have it. When's the last time you were actually thirsty about anything? Something you have to have. I'm not talking about lust here. I'm not talking about, you know, things. How about for someone you love? How about for God? I thirst. That's a human experience. He also grew tired. In John chapter 4, we know it commonly as Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. He was wearied. They had been traveling. It seems like that's all they did in the New Testament, walking from here to there and there, and they must needs go through Samaria. And, and lo and behold, he was wearied. 
got tired. You get tired, end of the day, kick off those shoes, shift back into lazy and yell at your wife out there to bring you something. Shame on you. <laughs> he grew weary, was wearied from his journey and was sitting beside the well when he encountered this lady. Well, you know what else is human? He bled. I don't know about you, but it seems like I've always got a scab on my hands. I'm a guy, I work with my hands, you know, doing a lot of stuff over at the office. Seems like I'm always bleeding. You know who bleeds? Humans, people. It wasn't a disguise, my friend. When they thrust that spear in his side, he bled and he died. And by the way, dying, that's also a human experience. When the scripture says that Christ died for your sin, it doesn't mean he experienced great pain and that was it. Jesus experienced it all from life, birth to death. He died. He bled and then he died in our place and for our sin. And he had a normal development. He grew up. He didn't just appear as a man. And that would have been a really rough birth. Uh, he, he came as a little babe and grew. As a matter of fact, the scripture says just that. He was a baby. I mean, we know about when he was 12 years old, this encounter at the temple. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 46 and 47, we read about his, his youth. After three days, they found him in the temple. Jesus had just disappeared. They were in Jerusalem for one of the feasts. You know, and Mary and Joseph, they're like, hey, where'd that kid go? And they looked around for him. They couldn't find him. After three days, imagine that terror, you know, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. It's just a little boy, a little kid, 12-year-old. Jesus, imagine, went through puberty. That's not something you really think about. All of the changes that go through physically, growing pains, relationships. He experienced it all, my friends. Normal developments. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 2 and verse 52... We read this, this, this progress report, as it were, about Jesus. And Jesus increased in three ways. The first, intellectually, the scripture says he increased in wisdom. The second way was in stature. So physically, he was growing. And finally, and in favor with God and men, spiritually and socially, Jesus was growing up. As a man, the God-man. And why did he do that? Why didn't he just come in at the last minute? I'll die for him. He experienced it all, my friends. He experienced it all. So he had a normal development. He was a baby, he was a young boy, and he grew to be an adult. And when he was 33, they nailed him to a cross. And notice this, in summarizing the hypostatic union, 
two natures, one essence. One person, not two persons, one person, two natures. Christ has two distinct natures, humanity and deity. There is no mixture. This is not a a combination of the two put in a blender and mixed up. Two natures, one essence. Everybody go like this. Two natures, one essence. One person, two natures. Got it? That's good doctrine right there. That's some straight truth. That is what we celebrate. But the question might be why. I mean, why? Why why go through all of this? And you're going to love the answer. I just got chills just thinking about what's on this page here. Why? Why the incarnation? Was it really just about the sacrifice? As if you could say just about the sacrifice. Was it just that? No, my friends, it was more. It certainly included that. Why the incarnation? Because Jesus had to be a man if he would die for all humanity. He had to be a man if he was to die for fallen humanity. Again, both natures absolutely necessary for this kind of redemption. As a man, Christ could represent man and die as a man. And as God, the death of Christ would have infinite value sufficient to provide redemption for the sins of the world. But don't miss this one. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And we talked about the frailty of his humanity. The frailty that every one of us deals with in our lives. And the writer to Hebrews says this in verse 14. Hebrews 4 and verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest, talking about Jesus here, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What you feel, he has felt. What you see, he has seen. Tears that roll down your cheek, he knew them. He had developed a relationship, a friendship with a guy named Lazarus. His sisters came to tell him he was dead. And in those two words that speak volumes to us about what you and I mean to him, the scripture says, Jesus wept. He wept. You've got to believe that there was some sound involved with that weeping. He knows a heartbreak. He knows the sense of loss. He understands. He is a high priest that gets it. He is not so far removed from us in heaven. He's a high priest. A man 
Jesus had to be a man to become a sympathetic high priest to us. He prays for us. He cares for us. But my friends, he does it from a place where he knows us. He gets us. That is the Jesus who is your Savior. One person, two natures. The incarnation, my friends. Let's wrap it up. Sermon in a sentence. Jesus added humanity to himself to be our sinless substitute. So I want to make some recommendations to you this Christmas. I would recommend that the kind of Christmas that honors God, the celebration of Christmas that honors God is one where we live thankfully for the incarnation. It isn't just a minor thought in the back of our heads. The fact that he became man to live and relate and ultimately die for us. Secondly, the kind of Christmas celebration that honors God follows the pattern of Jesus, immersing yourself into the lives of others and ministering to them. Jesus could not have gone to visit anyone more different than himself. He went to live among sinners while he was perfectly holy. It means to step outside of that comfort zone. Move outside of your circle and interact with people who may be different. Tell them about Jesus. Maybe live a little more like Jesus, compassionately, kindly, forgivingly. Follow the pattern. Immerse yourself in others' lives for ministry to them. It was a young couple, newly engaged, then married, looking for a place where they would live. And the groom's mother said, look, I live in a large house. I have a second floor. Surely I can set up this house so that you two can live up there. You don't need to pay any rent. All that I ask is that you spend time with me. And as new couples, busy, establishing their life, learning new patterns, they got busy. Well, this man, he didn't forget what his mother had asked, simply for time. Feeling badly about this, he went shopping. And he spent hours from store to store looking for the perfect dress. And he bought his mom this dress and came home and he was so thrilled to present it to her, open the box and she said, oh, it's lovely. He says, do you really like it, mom? And she says, let me show you something. And opens this large closet and there's nothing but dresses. And she says to him, I don't want your dress. I want you. How about that kind of Christmas? God help us.